we hired Ava Moskovitz, who is amazing, to run the program. Ava has now opened nine charter schools, with four more scheduled to start next year. What kind of results have you had so far? Because of New York state law, you have to start charter schools small. We started with grades K and 1, and then added a grade each year. Under New York law, if we started any larger, we would automatically be unionized. It's a law the unions have helped pass to handicap the growth of charter schools. Since testing grades are grades 3 through 8, only four of our schools have reached testing grades so far. The four schools that were tested last year beat Scarsdale, Great Neck, and all the top districts in the state. Where were these four schools? The schools were all in Harlem. With the success you've had, don't you face the problem of too many parents trying to get their kids into your school relative to the space you have? The only way to get into a charter school is through a lottery, and we have about nine kids applying for every spot. What did you think of the film Waiting for Superman? Harlem's success was actually one of the schools profiled in the movie. There was also another excellent documentary, The Lottery, which focused solely on Harlem's success. Do you think there is some hope that your program may help change the way government-run schools operate? I think eventually it will. K-12 education in the United States is a $600 billion business, and philanthropy can't be the answer. All that philanthropy can do is show the way. Charter schools are public schools, but they are independently run. Ava and her team have shown that it's not the kids' fault. We have the same kids as the publicly run schools. We get them by lottery. And it's not that the parents don't care. They do. It's not because there is not enough money. We actually run our schools for less money per student. So the bottom line is that we have the same kids, same parents, and less money. If our charter schools can continue to demonstrate success, it will hopefully remove the main excuses for why publicly run schools are unsuccessful. I'm not suggesting that it is an easy job. It is an incredibly tough job, but the current system is not run well, and there are a lot of impediments to success in the system. Our goal is that there will be incentives for the public schools to adopt things that we have done that have worked. Have you seen any impact at all on the political side of things? Lots of educators and legislators have visited our network schools, and I think they have been flabbergasted. That's a great start. As we show more years of success, and because our goal is to share everything we are doing, I think we will have an influence. Given the poor state of the current U.S. educational system, are you then optimistic that your efforts and similar efforts by others will lead to a meaningful improvement in the system within, say, the next ten years? That is the goal, but I also believe it will. We will play our small part, but there are plenty of other people following similar models. We share the intellectual property of anything that we do that works, and we steal liberally from the most successful charter schools that work. The relevant question is not how well the average charter school performs, but rather whether some charter schools perform much better. The goal is finding those models that work and rolling them out in size. It is just like capitalism in general. You want to find winners and reproduce those. But do you believe logic and results can overcome the political obstacles of the special interests? Unfortunately, at the moment, the teachers' union protests every new school we try to open because they don't want the competition. The teachers' union's plan is to kill us with 1,000 cuts, which means opposing us every step of the way. If we can survive that onslaught, and we are still here in 10 years, which I think we will be, then the effect should be huge. If Ava can replicate the success they have had so far in 30 or 40 schools, it will help change the discussion. I think a lot has already been changed. Have any politicians embraced what you're doing? Although I have my disagreements with President Obama on a number of economic issues, 
For a Democrat, I think he has been very progressive on the education issue. The Democrats have generally been in the pocket of the teachers' unions. President Obama has gone against his party's general stance and has embraced reform. I give him a lot of credit for doing that. The race to the top program was helpful in supporting charter schools in New York State by incentivizing states if they adopted pro-reform policies. About a week after I interviewed Greenblatt, I sat in on his class at the Columbia Business School. On this particular day, Greenblatt had invited a guest lecturer and used the first half of the session to answer student questions. The premise of the Q&A format was that Greenblatt would answer the questions as he thought Warren Buffett would. Since Greenblatt's investment philosophy is so closely aligned to Buffett's, his students were continually confused whether he was answering a question as Buffett or as himself, although in many cases it probably didn't make much difference. Below is a sampling of some of Greenblatt's comments in that class. My oldest son, who is a senior in college, is studying to be an opera singer. About half a year ago, he said to me, Hey, Dad, I'm probably going to be starving for the next five to six years, so maybe I should learn something about investing, too. I started teaching him in June. Stock prices have been crazy since then. He said everything I told him he would experience happened during his first five months he was watching the market. One of the stocks he picked at $16 went down to $9, then up to $18, and then back to $16 again. The business did not change at all during that period, yet the stock price changed significantly. Everybody says, there are too many people looking at stocks, there are no more opportunities. There are plenty of opportunities. You are setting yourself up for failure if you invest differently than you want to in order to please investors. Manage your own account if you can. There is nothing like actually doing it and learning what it is like when you lose money and finding out what your emotions are when you are doing well and not doing well. Buffett said, Time is the enemy of the poor business and the friend of the great business. One of the reasons why looking at return on capital is important is that it keeps you out of the value traps. When Rich Zena was here, he talked about computer associates. He told the story about how he called up their top 12 customers. They all said they hated the company. They hated the product, they hated the service, they hated everything about it. He then asked them if their top competitor offered their software and services for free. Would they switch? All twelve said something to the effect, Are you crazy? We can't switch. We can't close our business for a few days to switch to a competitor. That is an example of a sticky type of business. Greenblatt provides three critical lessons about value investing. 1. Value investing works. 2. Value investing doesn't work all the time. 3. Item 2 is one of the reasons why item 1 is true. Investing in good businesses that are priced cheap, Greenblatt's approach modeled after Buffett, will outperform the market over the longer term. This value edge does not go away because the periods of underperformance using a value approach can be long enough, a few years, and severe enough to discourage investors from sticking with the approach. Although many managers may realize the merit of value investing, they too will have trouble using such an approach because of the shortening of investor time horizons and tolerating subpar performance. The fact that institutions have become increasingly likely to redeem investments from managers who turn in below-average performance for periods as short as one year, let alone two years, means that managers who stick to a value approach risk losing substantial assets at some point. The inability of so many investors and managers to invest with a long-term horizon creates the opportunity for time arbitrage, an edge in an investing approach that requires the commitment to long-term holding periods.
Greenblatt believes the efficient market hypothesis provides an inaccurate model of how the market really works. Greenblatt's view is that although the market will eventually trade at fair value, a price that would be consistent with the efficient market hypothesis, in the interim, which can sometimes be as long as years, stocks can deviate substantially from their fair value. According to Greenblatt, a more appropriate model is that prices trade around fair value, but broad deviations occur because of wide swings in investor emotions. Greenblatt invokes Benjamin Graham's famous metaphor of Mr. Market, a hypothetical business partner subject to erratic moods, who is willing to sell shares to you or buy shares from you. As Greenblatt describes it in The Little Book That Beats the Market, sometimes Mr. Market is in such a good mood that he names a price that is much higher than the true worth of the business. On such days, it probably will make sense for you to sell Mr. Market your share of the business. On other days, he is in such a poor mood that he names a very low price for the business. On those days, you may want to take advantage of Mr. Market's crazy offer to sell you shares at such a low price and to buy Mr. Market's share of the business. You don't have to trade. Greenblatt advises that investors should wait for the right opportunity and the right time. Referencing Warren Buffett's comment, There are no called strikes on Wall Street. Greenblatt says, You can watch as many pitches as you want and only swing when everything sets up your way. Greenblatt believes that one of the biggest mistakes investors make is using past performance as the guide for selecting managers. Greenblatt cites empirical evidence demonstrating that there is no meaningful correlation between past and future manager performance rankings. He recommends selecting managers based on their investment process rather than their returns. Since past performance is not predictive, Greenblatt believes that, on average, stock indexes are a better investment choice than mutual funds because of their lower fees and more tax-efficient structure. Despite these advantages, Greenblatt views most popular stock indexes as being structurally flawed. The most popular indexes, such as the S&P 500 and Russell indexes, are capitalization-weighted, which means that the more overvalued a stock becomes, the greater the allocation, and the more undervalued, the lower the allocation, the exact reverse of what would be desirable. Equal-weighted indexes avoid this problem and add about 2% per year to the return of capitalization-weighted indexes. Greenblatt believes that a value-weighted index, not to be confused with the capitalization-weighted value index, can add significant additional improvement and may provide the most attractive long-only equity investment alternative for investors. Greenblatt's trade in Wells Fargo illustrates the concept that options can be substantially underpriced in situations in which the fundamentals dictate a greater-than-normal chance of either a large gain or a large loss, that is, a binary outcome scenario. In this particular trade, there was uncertainty whether Wells Fargo would survive a severe real estate downturn. If they did, however, its fee income suggested a far higher price. This binary outlook made a long-term long options position, which had almost as much upside potential on a very large move, but limited risk, a particularly attractive trade. The broader lesson is that options are primarily priced off of mathematical models that do not take account of specific fundamentals. If you can identify a situation where the fundamentals suggest that a large move up or down or in either direction is more likely than normal, options may provide a very attractive risk-slash-reward trade. Although it is not a lesson that is relevant to most investors, it can be critical to managers. Guard against letting assets grow to the point where size impedes performance. Given the spectacular track record of the first 10 years of Gotham Capital, Greenblatt could easily have grown his fund by multiples, collecting hefty management fees in the process.
Instead, he chose to return all assets to investors to keep the money under management, his own and that of his partners, small enough so that it did not interfere with the ability to execute the strategy or impede performance. Conclusion 40 Market Wizard Lessons 1. There is no holy grail in trading. Many traders mistakenly believe that there is some single solution to defining market behavior. Not only is there no single solution to the markets, but those solutions that do exist are continually changing. The range of the methods used by the traders interviewed in this audiobook, some of which are even polar opposites, is a testament to the diversity of possible approaches. There are a multitude of ways to be successful in the markets, albeit they are all hard to find and achieve. 2. Find a trading method that fits your personality. Traders must find a methodology that fits their own beliefs and talents. A sound methodology that is successful for one trader can be a poor fit and a losing strategy for another trader. O'Shea lucidly expressed this concept in answer to the question of whether trading skill could be taught. If I try to teach you what I do, you will fail because you are not me. If you hang around me, you will observe what I do, and you may pick up some good habits. But there are a lot of things that you will want to do differently. A good friend of mine who sat next to me for several years is now managing lots of money at another hedge fund and doing very well. But he is not the same as me. What he learned was not to become me. He became something else. He became him. 3. Trade within your comfort zone. If a position is too large, the trader will be prone to exit good trades on inconsequential corrections because fear will dominate the decision process. As Clark advises, you have to trade within your emotional capacity. Similarly, Vidic warns, limit your size in any position so that fear does not become the prevailing instinct guiding your judgment. In this sense, a smaller net exposure may actually yield better returns, even if the market ultimately moves in the favorable direction. For example, Taylor came into 2008 with a large net long exposure in high beta stocks in an increasingly risky market. Uncomfortable with the level of his exposure, Taylor sharply reduced his positions in early January, when the market subsequently plunged later in the month. He was well positioned to increase his long exposure. Had Taylor remained heavily net long, he might instead have been forced to sell into the market weakness to reduce risk, thereby missing out and fully participating in the subsequent rebound. 4. Flexibility is an essential quality for trading success. Highly skilled traders will not only liquidate their positions if they believe they've made a mistake, but will actually reverse those positions. In April 2009, O'Shea was pessimistic about the financial outlook, but the market behavior was telling him that he was wrong. He formulated an alternative hypothesis that seemed to fit the price action. That is, the markets were seeing the beginning of an Asia-led economic recovery. Staying with his original market expectation would have been costly, as both equity and commodity markets embarked on a multi-year rally. O'Shea's flexibility in recognizing that his original premise was wrong, and his ability to reverse his trading posture, turned a potentially disastrous year into a winning one. As another example, Mai's best trade of 2011 came from shorting dry bulk shippers, a trade idea that, ironically, originated with the premise that these companies represented a buying opportunity. However, when in doing his research Mai realized that he was not only wrong, but that he had it exactly backward, he reversed his original trading plan. Clark emphasizes that good traders can change their minds in an instant. 
They can be absolutely convinced the market is going higher one moment and just as convinced it is going lower in the next. 5. The need to adapt. It would be nice to believe that if you can find a trading methodology that works and also have the discipline to apply it consistently, then trading success is assured. Unfortunately, the real world is a bit more difficult. Markets change, and strategies that work may eventually deteriorate. Good traders need to be vigilant to the possibility that a once-reliable approach may lose its efficacy or even become a losing strategy due to changing market conditions. For example, Thorpe was able to maintain the strong return-slash-risk of his statistical arbitrage approach by continually adapting it. By the time he got to the third iteration, the original system had significantly degraded. Platt, whose firm Bluecrest trades both discretionary and systematic strategies, believes that systematic approaches must continually be revised or else they will degrade. He describes the process as a research war. Balladimus had to adapt a less aggressive posture in positioning against ongoing trends once he realized that the growing participation of hedge funds was resulting in smoother and more prolonged market trends. Had he not responded to the changing market environment, his previous successful approach would likely have led to large losses. 6. Don't confuse the concepts of winning and losing trades with good and bad trades. A good trade can lose money, and a bad trade can make money. Even the best trading processes will lose a certain percentage of the time. There is no way of knowing, a priori, which individual trade will make money. As long as a trade adhered to a process with a positive edge, it is a good trade, regardless of whether it wins or loses, because if similar trades are repeated multiple times, they will come out ahead. Conversely, a trade that is taken as a gamble is a bad trade, regardless of whether it wins or loses, because over time such trades will lose money. 7. Do more of what works and less of what doesn't. This core advice offered by Clark may sound obvious, but the reality is that many traders violate this principle. It is quite common for a trader to be good at one type of trade, but to degrade performance by also engaging in trades without any clear edge, whether due to boredom or other reasons. Clark's message is that traders need to figure out what they are best at and then focus their attention on those types of trades. 8. If you are out of sync with the markets, trying harder won't help. When trading is going badly, trying harder is often likely to make matters even worse. If you are in a losing streak, the best action may be to step away from the markets. Clark advises that the best way to handle a losing streak is to liquidate everything and take a vacation. A physical break can serve to interrupt the downward spiral and loss of confidence that can develop during losing periods. Clark further advises that when trading is resumed, the size should be kept small until confidence is regained. 9. The road to success is paved with mistakes. Dalio strongly believes that learning from mistakes is essential to improvement and ultimate success. Each mistake, if recognized and acted on, provides an opportunity for improving a trading approach. Most traders would benefit by writing down each mistake, the implied lesson, and the intended change in the trading process. Such a trading log can be periodically reviewed for reinforcement. Trading mistakes cannot be avoided, but repeating the same mistakes can be, and doing so is often the difference between success and failure. 10. Wait for high conviction trades. Having the patience to wait for high expected value trades greatly enhances the return slash risk of individual trades. My, for example, is perfectly content to stay on the sidelines and do absolutely nothing until there is a trade opportunity that meets his guidelines. 
Greenblatt makes the point that for longer-term investors, placing suboptimal positions may tie up capital that could be applied to more attractive opportunities that arise in the future or require liquidating such positions at a loss to free up capital. 11. Trade because of perceived opportunity, not out of the desire to make money. Toward the end of 2010, out of a desire to reach his minimum profit target for the year, Benedict took marginal trades he otherwise would not have taken. These trades resulted in net losses, and, as a consequence, Benedict ended up even further from his intended target. Trading to make money is always a bad idea. Traders should only take a trade when the market provides an opportunity as defined by their own individual strategy. 12. The Importance of Doing Nothing For some traders, the discipline and patience to do nothing when the environment is unfavorable or opportunities are lacking is a crucial element in their success. For example, despite making minimal use of short positions, Daly achieved cumulative gross returns in excess of 800% during a 12-year period when the broad equity markets were essentially flat. In part, he accomplished this feat by having the discipline to remain largely in cash during negative environments, which allowed him to sidestep large drawdowns during two major bear markets. The lesson is that if conditions are not right, or the return-slash-risk is not sufficiently favorable, don't do anything. Beware of taking dubious trades out of impatience. 13. How a trade is implemented can be more important than the trade itself. A good example of this principle was provided by the way O'Shea traded his assumption that the bubble had burst in equities following the initial break from the March 2000 peak. He did not consider short positions in NASDAQ because of the danger of treacherous bear market rallies. Instead, O'Shea implemented his trade idea via a long bond position, reasoning that a bear market in equities implied that most assets would recede from inflated levels, which would lead to an economic slowdown in lower interest rates. Even though the stock market ultimately went much lower, if O'Shea had implemented his idea through a short stock index position, there is a high likelihood that he would have been stopped out by the 40% rebound in the NASDAQ index during the summer 2000. In contrast, the long bond position, which he had implemented instead of going short the equity index, witnessed a fairly smooth uptrend. The trade was highly successful, not because the underlying premise was correct, which it was, but rather because of the way the trade was implemented. If O'Shea had gone short the stock index instead, he would have been correct on his call, but most likely would have lost money by being stopped out during the steep bear market rally in equities. 14. Trading around a position can be beneficial. Most traders tend to view trades as a two-step process, a decision when to enter and a decision when to exit. It may be better to view trading as a dynamic rather than static process between entry and exit points. The basic idea is that as a trade moves in the intended direction, the position exposure would be gradually reduced. The larger the move and the closer the market gets to a target objective, the more the position would be reduced. After reducing exposure in this manner, the position would be reinstated on a market correction. Anytime the market retraced to a correction re-entry point, a net profit would be generated that otherwise would not have been realized. The choppier the market, the more excess profits trading around the position will generate. Even a trade in which the market fails to move in the intended direction on balance could still be profitable as a result of gains generated by lightening the total position on favorable trend moves and reinstating liquidated portions of the position on corrections. This strategy will also reduce the chances of being knocked out of a favorable position on a market correction because if the position has already been reduced, the correction will have less impact and may even be desired to reinstate the liquidated portion of the position. 
The only time this strategy will have a net adverse impact is if the market keeps on going in the intended direction without ever retracing to correction re-entry levels. This negative outcome, however, simply means that the original trade was profitable, but that total profits are smaller than they would have been otherwise. In a nutshell, trading around a position will generate extra profits and increase the chances of staying with good trades at the expense of sometimes giving up a portion of profits on trades that move smoothly in the intended direction. For Balladimus, trading around a position is a critical ingredient in his overall trading success. Not infrequently, it even allows him to be profitable on trades where he's wrong. 15. Position size can be more important than the entry price. Too many traders focus only on the entry price and pay insufficient attention to the size of the position. Trading too large can result in good trades being liquidated at a loss because of fear. On the other hand, Trading larger than normal when the profit potential appears to be much greater than the risk is one of the key ways in which many of the market wizards achieve superior returns. Trading smaller, or not at all, for lower probability trades and larger for higher probability trades can even transform a losing strategy into a winning one. For example, by varying the bet size based on perceived probabilities, Thorpe was able to transform the negative edge in blackjack into a positive edge. An analogous principle would apply to a trading strategy in which it was possible to identify higher and lower probability trades. 16. Determining the trade size. What is the optimal trade size? There is a mathematically precise answer. The Kelly criterion, described in Chapter 6, will provide a higher cumulative return over the long run than any other strategy for determining trade size. The problem, however, is that the Kelly criterion assumes that the probability of winning and the ratio of the amount won to the amount lost per wager are precisely known. Although this assumption is valid for games of chance, in trading, the probability of winning is unknown and at best can only be estimated. If win-loss probabilities can be reasonably estimated, then the Kelly criterion can provide a starting point for determining trade size. Thorpe recommends trading only half the Kelly amount, assuming win-loss probabilities can be estimated, because the penalty for overestimating the correct trade size is severe, and because most people would find the volatility implied by the full Kelly amount too high for their comfort level. If win-loss probabilities can't be reasonably estimated, then the Kelly criterion can't be used. 17. Vary market exposure based on opportunities. Exposure levels and even the direction of exposure should vary based on opportunities and perceived relative value. For example, depending on whether stock prices appear to be cheaply or expensively priced, Claugus will vary his net exposure range from 110% long to 70% short. Varying the exposure based on opportunity can lead to significantly improved performance results. 18. Seek an asymmetric return-slash-risk profile. My structures his trades to be right-skewed, that is, the maximum loss is limited, but the upside is open-ended. One common way of achieving this type of return-slash-risk profile is by being a selected buyer of options, buying options when there is a perceived greater-than-normal probability of a large price move. O'Shea is another trader who structures almost all of his trades to be right-skewed. Some of the trades he uses to achieve this return-slash-risk profile include long options, long credit default swap, CDS protection, and long T-bill short euro-dollar TED spreads, all trades in which the maximum loss is constrained. Platt achieves right-skewed asymmetry at the portfolio level through the risk control process, which strictly limits each trader's maximum loss from the starting allocation each year, 
but does not raise the risk cutoff level if the trader generates profits during the year. In this way, the portfolio maximum loss is tightly curtailed, but the upside potential is open-ended. 19. Beware of trades born of euphoria. Caution against placing impulsive trades influenced by being caught up in market hysteria. Excessive euphoria in the market should be seen as a cautionary flag of a potential impending reversal. 20. If you are on the right side of euphoria or panic, lighten up. Parabolic price moves in either direction tend to end abruptly and sharply. If you are fortunate enough to be on the right side of a market, in which the price move turns near vertical, consider scaling out of the position while the trend is still moving in your direction. If you would be petrified to be on the other side of the market, that is probably a good sign that you should be lightening your position. 21. Staring at the screen all day can be expensive. Clark believes that watching every tick can lead to both overtrading and an increased chance of liquidating good positions. He advises finding a more productive use of time to avoid the pitfalls of watching the market too closely. 22. Just because you've heard it 100 times doesn't make it less important. Risk control is critical. Many of the traders interviewed are more concerned about not losing money than making money. Risk control strategies mentioned by the traders included the following. Risk limits on individual trades. Many of the traders interviewed will risk only a small percentage of assets under management on any single trade. Ramsey, for example, only risks a loss about 0.1% on any individual trade, although such a close stop is probably too extreme, or perhaps even advisable, for most traders to adopt. The general concept of using a relatively close stop at trade inception while allowing a wider stop relative to prevailing prices after a profit margin has been established is an effective risk management approach that could work well for many traders. Exposure Reduction Thresholds Despite achieving double-digit returns and managing assets in double-digit billions, the Bluecrest discretionary strategy has contained its worst drawdown to under 5% in more than a decade of trading through many volatile markets. The key to this amazing feat of risk management has been the firm's exposure reduction rules. Bluecrest's CEO, Michael Platt, restricts himself and other discretionary traders at the firm to a loss limit of 3% from the starting allocation before the exposure allocation is cut in half. A loss of another 3% leads to the removal of the trader's entire allocation. These rigid controls severely limit the loss any trader can realize from a starting allocation. The rules encourage traders to be extremely conservative in their high-risk taking at the start of each year. As traders register gains, however, they can increase their risk levels because the original exposure reduction thresholds remained unchanged for the year. In this manner, upside potential is open-ended, while downside risk is severely curtailed. Barring huge overnight gaps in the market, larger losses can occur only through the surrender of year-to-date profits rather than losses of original capital. Benedict utilizes a similar risk management philosophy. Anytime he approaches a 2.5% loss in any given month, he significantly reduces net exposure and continues to trade in smaller size until the loss is recovered. In this manner, he severely constrains his potential loss in any given month. Position Size Adjustments for Changes in Volatility As examples of this approach, in 2008, both Woodruff and Clark cut their exposure levels by approximately a factor of four in response to the steep increase in volatility. Trade-Dependent Risk Controls Some trades are inherently risk-constrained, whereas other trades have open-ended risk. 
In recognition of these differences, uniform risk controls across all trades may not be appropriate. For example, when Thorpe implemented arbitrage trades that had well-defined maximum theoretical risk, he did not consider reducing exposure if the position went against him. In contrast, when he employed a trend-following strategy, in which the trades were directional and the risk was open-ended, he made exposure reduction on drawdowns part of the methodology. 23. Don't try to be 100% right. Almost every trader has had the experience of the market moving against a position sufficiently to raise significant concern regarding the potential additional loss, while still believing the position is correct. Staying in the trade risks an uncomfortably large loss, but liquidating the trade risks abandoning a good position at nearly the worst possible point. In such circumstances, Vidic advises that instead of making an all-or-nothing decision, traders should liquidate part of the position. Taking a partial loss is much easier than liquidating the entire position and will avoid the possibility of writing the entire position for a large loss. It will also preserve the potential for a partial recovery if the market turns around. 24. Protective stops need to be consistent with the trade analysis. O'Shea explains that too many traders set stops based on their pain threshold rather than as points that disprove their trade premise. Because traders can't stand the pain of a larger loss, they tend to set stops too close, that is, at a point at which they would still believe in the trade. Consequently, there is a tendency for some traders to try to repeatedly re-enter a trade after being stopped out, potentially leading to multiple losses, which cumulatively can be larger than the single loss that would have occurred with a wider stop originally set at a meaningful level. O'Shea advises that traders should first decide at what price they would believe their trade is wrong, and then set the stop accordingly. If the implied loss to this stop point is uncomfortably large, then the position size should be reduced commensurately. Using this approach, if the market reaches the stop point, it will be consistent with demonstrating that the original trade idea was wrong. 25. Constraining monthly losses is only a good idea if it is consistent with the trading strategy. Although tightly constraining monthly losses is a prudent action for many traders, for investors with a long-term perspective, monthly loss constraints can be detrimental. Taylor, for example, believes that if he has a strong conviction that a stock will move much higher over the long term, then cutting exposure on interim weakness to limit the depth of a monthly loss would be a mistake. Similarly, Greenblatt asserts that value investors must maintain a longer-term perspective and not be swayed by interim losses, providing the fundamentals haven't changed. For longer-term investors, such as Taylor and Greenblatt, Monthly loss constraints would be in conflict with their strategy. 26. The Power of Diversification Dalio calls diversification the holy grail of investing. He points out that if assets are truly uncorrelated, diversification could improve return-slash-risk by as much as a factor of 5 to 1. 27. Correlation can be misleading. Although being cognizant of correlation between different markets is crucial to avoiding excessive risk, it is important to understand that correlation measures past price relationships. It is only relevant if there is a reason to believe that the past correlation is a reasonable proxy for future correlation. Some market correlations are stable, but others can vary widely and even change sign. For example, stocks and bonds sometimes move in the same direction and sometimes move inversely. If correlation is used during such a transition period, it can be worse than no information at all because it can lead to the exact wrong conclusions about future price relationships and risk. 28. 
The price action in related markets can sometimes provide important trading clues. For some traders, such as Benedict and Ramsey, the interaction of price movements and related markets is a critical input in their trade decision process. Although the price action in other markets can be important, there are no set rules in how such price action should be interpreted. Sometimes, one market may tend to lead another. In other situations, two markets may move in tandem, but then begin to move independently, a price behavior change that may provide price directional clues. As an example, after years of correlated price movement, in early September 2011, equity prices rallied, but commodity prices weakened. Ramsey read the failure of commodity prices to respond to equity market strength as a signal of impending weakness. During the second half of September, commodity prices and commodity-influenced currencies plunged. 29. Markets behave differently in different environments. Any analysis of fundamental factors that assumes a static relationship between economic variables and market prices will be doomed to failure because markets behave differently in different environments. As Dalio points out, the same fundamental conditions and government actions will have different price consequences in a deleveraging environment than in a recession. 30. Pay attention to how the market responds to news. A counter to anticipated response to market news may be more meaningful than the news item itself. Platt recalls a trade in which there was a continuing stream of adverse news. He repeatedly expected to lose money after each news item, and yet the market did not move against him. Platt read the inability of the market to respond to the news as confirmation of his trade idea, and he quadrupled his position, turning it into one of his biggest winners ever. 31. Major fundamental events may often be followed by counterintuitive price movements. Dalio recalls two such critical events in his early trading career. The U.S. abandonment of the gold standard in 1971 was followed by a huge market rally, as was the Mexican default in 1982. There are two explanations for this type of seemingly paradoxical price behavior. First, such major events are often fully anticipated and discounted, or even over-discounted. Second, a major bearish fundamental development may spur government actions that can often have a greater market impact than the event itself. 32. Situations characterized by the potential for a widely divergent binary outcome can often provide excellent buying opportunities and options. Option prices are primarily determined by models that assume large price movements are unlikely. In circumstances where the fundamentals suggest a significant potential for either a large price gain or a large price loss, option prices often fail to reflect the abnormally large probability of such outsized price movements. Examples of this principle include Greenblatt's option trade in Wells Fargo and Mai's option trade in Capital One. 33. A stock can be well-priced even if it has already gone up a lot. Many traders miss participating in the best opportunities because they can't bring themselves to buy a stock or market that has already seen the large up move. What matters, however, is not how much a stock has gone up, but rather how well a stock is priced relative to its future prospects. For example, Taylor's largest holding at the time of our interview, Apple, had already experienced a large price advance, and indeed this prior large price gain kept many investors from buying the stock, despite its excellent fundamentals. But in Taylor's opinion, the amount of the prior price gain was irrelevant because based on his earnings projections, the stock was still priced cheap. 34. Don't make trading decisions based on where you bought or sold a stock. 
The market doesn't care where you entered your position. When Vidic felt that a stock that had just fallen all the way back to where he had bought it was going lower, he just got out, not letting his entry level affect the trading decision. 35. Potential new revenue sources that are more than a year out may not be reflected in the current stock price. Klaugus likes to look for situations where a company will recognize new revenue sources one or more years out because such future potential earnings are frequently not adequately discounted, or discounted at all, by the current stock price. 36. Value Investing Works Greenblatt has demonstrated that value investing works both through a long career as a highly successful trader using value principles and through rigorous computer-based research. The catch is that although value investing works over the long term, there are times when it works poorly. However, as Greenblatt points out, this periodic underperformance is actually the reason why value investing is able to maintain its edge. If it worked all the time, it would attract enough followers so the edge would disappear. Given the inherent long-term character of the efficacy of this approach, value investors need to have a similar long-term perspective to avoid inconsistencies between their methodology and trading decisions. 37. The efficient market hypothesis provides an inaccurate model of how the market really works. Prices are not always near fair value. Sometimes prices will be much too high based on the prevailing information, and sometimes they will be much too low. Greenblatt quotes the metaphor originally used by Benjamin Graham, in which he compares the market to a highly erratic business partner who is sometimes willing to sell shares to you at absurdly low prices and sometimes willing to buy shares from you at ridiculously high prices. The trader should take advantage of these bouts of emotional irrationality by the market. Of course, the corollary is that the value investor will typically be a seller during periods of market euphoria and a buyer during market panics. To be able to hold fundamentally justified value positions through market panics, the value investor needs to maintain a long-term perspective. 38. It is usually a mistake for a manager to alter investment decisions or the investment process to better fit investor demands. Greenblatt tells his students, You are setting yourself up for failure if you invest differently than you want to in order to please investors. Taylor acknowledges the same perspective when he states, I am trying to stop caring about what my clients think. 39. Volatility and risk are not synonymous. Low volatility does not imply low risk, and high volatility does not imply high risk. Investments subject to sporadic large risks may exhibit low volatility if a risk event is not present in the existing track record. For example, the strategy of selling out-of-the-money options can exhibit low volatility if there are no large abrupt price moves, but is at risk of asymptotically increasing losses in the event of a sudden steep sell-off. On the other hand, traders such as Mai will exhibit high volatility because of occasional very large gains, not a factor that most investors would associate with risk or even consider undesirable, but will have strictly curtailed risk because of the asymmetric structure of their trades. So some strategies, such as option selling, can have both low volatility and large open-ended risk, and some strategies, such as Mai's, can have both high volatility and constrained risk. 40. It is a mistake to select managers based solely on past performance. Greenblatt cites various empirical studies demonstrating that the past performance of managers has no predictive value regarding their future performance. So the single factor that overwhelmingly determines how investors choose their investments, that is, past returns, has no efficacy. Greenblatt advises choosing managers based on their process rather than past returns. 
As a related point, investors often make the mistake of equating manager performance in a given year with manager skill. Sometimes, more skilled managers will underperform because they refuse to participate in market bubbles. The best performers during such periods are often the most imprudent rather than the most skilled managers. Taylor underperformed in 1999 because he thought it was ridiculous to buy tech stocks at their inflated price levels. The same investment decision, however, was instrumental to his large outperformance in subsequent years when these stocks witnessed a prolonged, massive decline. In this sense, past performance can sometimes even be an inverse indicator. Epilogue I am often asked by readers how doing the Market Wizard interviews affected my own trading. The interview and writing process has helped solidify in my own mind the principles that are important to trading success. At times, it has also had a very specific influence. A great example occurred last summer. At the time, the stock market was approaching the high end of a long-term trading range. And for a variety of reasons, I expected the rally to fail and was positioned on the short side of stock index futures. Then the government released an extremely bearish employment report. It was so negative that commentators couldn't even cite one offsetting bullish consideration, as they usually do. The market initially sold off sharply in response. Perfect, I thought of my trade. But by the end of the day, it nearly recovered the entire loss, ending the week near the recent high. From the perspective of a short, this was terrible price action. I thought I was in trouble. I was prepared to cover most of my position when the market opened on Sunday night. On Sunday night, however, the market opened lower. I immediately thought of Marty Schwartz's advice in my first Market Wizards book. If you're very nervous about a position overnight, and especially over the weekend, and you're able to get out at a much better price than you thought when the market trades, you're usually better off staying with the position. I did, and Schwartz's insight saved me a lot of money, as the market proceeded to move sharply lower in the ensuing weeks. Each person must draw one's own insights from these interviews. What is important will very much depend on your own trading style. But I believe all traders, regardless of their approach, can draw important lessons from the advice and comments of the traders interviewed. The relevant interviews and advice will just be different for each reader. As one personal example, I think my interview of Jimmy Balladimus, whose basic approach is radically different from my own, influenced me to trade more around positions, that is, to treat trades as more of a dynamic rather than static process an aspect of his approach more in tune with my own natural inclinations. Balladimus's comment that I always take some money off the table when the market is in my favor resonated in my mind to beneficial effect, as some of my trades that went nowhere ended up generating net profits. Over the years, many people have told me that reading the original Market Wizards books changed their careers and changed their lives. I have been told this both by professional managers and by numerous attendees at my conference talks. I never know whether this life-changing impact is for the better. One time, a physician told me that he dropped his career to become a trader after reading my book, and I actually felt guilty about having deprived the world of a doctor in exchange for one more trader. Ironically, one of the people whose lives was changed by the Market Wizard books was my own son, Zachary, who had also had a direct impact on the content of this book. Here, too, I don't know whether the change will be for the better or worse, and will never know because the proverbial road not taken remains forever unseen. I thought it was appropriate to end with his personal reflections on the message and influence of this book and its predecessors as offering a view from the perspective of someone discovering and entering the world of trading. Jack Schwager The Market Wizard series has come to shape a great deal of my life, more than I could have ever anticipated. 
I was eight years old. It was bring your child to work day. I loved my dad's office. It was full of things that I was not supposed to touch. Better yet, he had a secretary with a large bowl of candy and apparently no inhibitions about increasing my chances for an early onset of diabetes. I was off in the corner disassembling my father's coffee machine when he called me over for a game. The rules of the game were simple. He would cycle through charts. It was my job to guess whether the chart's next move was going to be up or down. It wouldn't be until much later in my life that I would find out that this wasn't a game at all. It was an experiment. My father has, and still holds, a theory that some individuals are naturally gifted traders who have an instinctive ability to recognize and predict visual price patterns. Five charts into the game, he was able to conclude that I was not one of these individuals. It would be years before I would look at another chart. In my junior year of high school, I would meet my first market wizard, John Bender. I had suggested to my father that we take a trip before I left for college. My dad is always game for an adventure. Several years earlier, he had disappeared on a hike up Mount Temple in the Canadian Rockies. Instead of the simple day hike he told us he was departing on, he came back twelve hours later with frostbite, having decided to summit the mountain instead. I thought it best that we go someplace warm this time. John Bender had just retired from trading and used his gains to buy up thousands of acres of Costa Rican rainforests. He invited us to stay at a guest house on the reserve. We arranged for an SUV to drive us four hours from San Jose up to John's reserve in the rainforest. Our car made its way up a winding, single-lane dirt road, at the top of which was a clearing with two heavily armed men. John's reserve was patrolled by guards to prevent poaching. The property had three residences, one under construction, set on a large, grassy plateau. One was the existing main house in which John resided with his wife, Anne, while they built their spectacular, multi-level, 360-degree view dream house on the edge of the plateau. We settled into the third dwelling, the guest house, and agreed to meet John for a drink once we unpacked. John was sitting on his lightly landscaped porch, overlooking the rainforest below, beers in hand. We talked for hours as the sun set over the edge of the rainforest. John led most of the conversation. He had lots of energy, as if he had so much to say and had just been waiting for the right person to talk to. The conversation ranged from the paradoxes presented by quantum physics experiments to John's particular disgust for one fund manager who he insisted was a fraud. I wouldn't hear that manager's name again for nine years when the financial crisis exposed what John had known all along. Bernie Madoff was a fraud. College was quickly approaching. I went down to my dad's office to seek his advice on a major. It's quite embarrassing to say, but at this point, I had still not read Market Wizards. I had no involvement with the markets, and my father was never one to push anyone toward his own desires. I told him I wanted to be a doctor. I remember his response very clearly. I don't think that's a very good fit. My dad will always give you the truth, beginning his sentence with an awkward chuckle to hide his discomfort when his candor requires imparting an opinion he knows you don't want to hear. I didn't take his advice immediately, but it wasn't long into my first year of college when I realized he had been right. I am more of a creative type, and being a doctor was probably not a good fit. I switched to film school in New York. To help spark my interest in investing, my father had given me a $500 Ameritrade account. I found a few recommendations online and bought three stocks. Two of my stocks continued to climb higher. The third, CSX, hovered in a range somewhere between $30 and $40. I called my dad. I was ready to impress him with my insight. Having noted the stock's trading pattern, I told him that I planned to sell it near $40 and then buy it back near $30. He was not impressed. He chuckled and said, yeah, people do that. 
Two years later, my account was up over $2,000. I recognized I knew remarkably little about the stock market and assumed that I had probably just been lucky. I liquidated my portfolio and bought a film camera. My father was coming to New York to give a talk at a trading expo. He extended an invitation to me, which I cautiously accepted. I pulled out my only collared shirt from the bottom of the closet and made my way to the Hilton Times Square. Everybody was wearing suits, and I instantly felt uncomfortable. My mother, whom my dad refers to as his best long-term trade, was already seated. I walked over and sat next to her. She greeted me with one of her favorite comments. You're such a handsome boy, but nobody would ever know by the way you are dressed. The room filled up, and my dad walked up to the podium. Everyone seemed extremely excited to hear what he had to say. I sank into my seat and hoped I would understand enough so that I could say something nice to him when it was over. I didn't know this moment would change the course of my life. My dad began to speak. I waited for his words to drift beyond my realm of comprehension, but that moment never came. Einstein once said, Any intelligent fool can make things bigger, more complex, and more violent. It takes a touch of genius and a lot of courage to move in the opposite direction. My father has always had the ability and desire to take complex ideas and boil them down to their simplest forms. His talk was based on the important lessons he had uncovered in his interviews with the world's top traders. Three key insights resonated with me and changed my previous conceptions about trading. 1. Trading is not reserved for the world's most elite. The traders he interviewed came from various backgrounds. There was no correlation between trading success and school or prior occupation. The commonality of the traders was traced to hard work and determination and their desire to unlock the puzzle of the market. They all shared an aspiration to avoid the psychological impediments that prevented most people from winning in the markets. 2. Trading is not just a science, but also an art. Even those traders who use a purely systematic approach to tackling the markets are still engaged in creative thinking. None of the traders he discussed stepped into an already working formula. Nobody was handed a blueprint. Their success was built on the backbone of their ability to discover what others overlooked. 3. There is no single right way to make money. Those who succeed do so because they find what works for them. Trying to replicate someone else's method almost always results in failure. All successful traders have their own methodology, an approach that makes sense to them and that they are comfortable with. The talk concluded with a question-and-answer session. To my surprise, the industry professionals had some questions very similar to my own. I realized then that there was not as much that divided us as I had originally assumed. We all wanted to know and understand more, including my own father, as this desire was what had set him out on his quest to interview these market wizards many years earlier. I have had the honor of getting to work with my dad on this book, which is not meant to imply that I have done much at all. I have simply had the privilege of sharing my impressions and suggestions after reading each chapter as he completed them. The amount of work that my father puts into these books is just incredible. I was amazed at the time it takes to go through the many hours of tapes to formulate a chapter. People often tell my dad he is a great interviewer, to which he frequently replies, I am a horrible interviewer, but I am an excellent editor. Of course, only the latter half of that statement is true. My dad has a natural ability to pull the best out of anybody. He manages to ask all the questions you can think of, and then all the ones he can think of. Working with my dad on this book has been one of the greatest learning experiences of my life. Beyond this book, I am quite pleased to say that this won't be the last time I am able to pick my dad's brain for market knowledge. 
After watching him speak at the trading expo, I dropped out of film school and went off to get my bachelor's degree in finance. I now work as a junior trader at First New York Securities. I have no idea what the future holds for me, or whether I will be successful at trading in the long run, but I do know that the knowledge I have gained from this experience will serve me wherever life takes me. A couple of months ago, I was out for a happy hour with a few associates. One of them asked me, Do you feel that because of your dad you have a lot to live up to as a trader? To which I replied, It would be far easier to be as successful as my dad in trading than to be as successful as he is on a human level. My dad is one of the kindest, humblest, and most generous people I have ever come across. I would much rather be as great a person as he is than to be as successful as he is. Thank you, Dad, for including me in this process and inspiring my journey. Zachary Schwager This has been an Audible Inc. production of Hedge Fund Market Wizards, How Winning Traders Win. Written by Jack D. Schwager. Narrated by Clinton Wade. Producer Mike Charzik. Copyright 2012 by Jack D. Schwager. Production Copyright 2012 by Audible Inc. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.